0: Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates so on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. His name is Drew Hurst Beeson, and in 2020 he published a book which I just completed this morning. The title of that book is Paratrooper of Fortune: The Story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam Commando, CIA Operative, Congo Mercenary, and Just Maybe DB Cooper. And he's also the other, uh, an author of other books. Another one is Citing In on the Zodiac Killer: Unmasking America's Most Puzzling Unsolved Murders. Also, I think there are some uh, fiction books, The Cloak of the Brethren and A in Hell. And he also hosts a True Crime YouTube channel. What's the name of your YouTube channel?
1: It just goes by my name. It's Drew Beeson. Drew Beeson. gotcha.
0: B-E-E-S-O-N. So, Great. Drew, thanks for uh, being on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, William. Cool. Well, for people who don't know of your background, can you talk a little bit about it and what led you to this very interesting book about the legendary D.B. Cooper mystery?
1: Well, I've always liked all things uh, concerning Unsolved Mysteries. Actually, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries that was hosted by the great Robert Stack was a big influence on me as well as many others. And I always liked cases that that weren't solved and uh, the mystery behind them. And this case was no different. This was the case of uh, D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of an airplane in 1971 with two hundred thousand dollars in twenty dollar bills strapped to his body. So as soon as I learned that story, I was I was hooked. I mean that guy was a legend to me. And I can't remember exactly how old I was at the time when that show came on. I was probably uh something when I in my twenties, but uh, it stuck with me ever since.
0: Gotcha. And so what uh so the it was unsolved mysteries, but what tell people who may not know the story of DB cooper or what the whole background or the details around this uh daring robbery or skyjacking was as it was called what what were the details around it
1: well the details were and it was kind of a, a, a first of its kind type of crime it was you know called a skyjacking uh which is uh, hijacking an airplane for money and it was a little different than anything that ever happened before of course well in uh on the eve of thanksgiving on november 24th 1971 a man, uh, wearing a tie and, uh, an overcoat and carrying a briefcase. was calmly walking through, uh, the, the airport in Portland, Oregon, and he bought a $20 ticket to Seattle, just a short flight North of Seattle. And he calmly boarded the plane. It was uh, Northwest Orients flight 305. And he, uh, boarded the plane. He was the last passenger on. He took, took a seat in the back and, uh, Before the plane took off, he asked one of the stewardess, he says, "Uh, Miss, I have something for you. And he and he uh, he handed her a note and she thought he was uh, the stewardess thought he was just flirting with her. And he says, Miss, I really need you to read that note. So she opened up the note and it says, uh, Miss, I have a bomb and I'd like you to sit next to me. So he finally got her attention Um, and uh, she wound up uh, sitting next to him and uh, he gave her her demands and she took it up to the cockpit to the captain. And, it, you know, it, it said, you know, I, you know, he's got a bomb and a briefcase. He's going to blow us up if we don't meet his demands. And those demands were uh, four parachutes, two front chutes, two back chutes, and uh, $200,000 in cash. Uh, so they, they quickly met, met his demands. They didn't want to take any chances. So the uh, plane takes off to, towards Seattle, and uh, this all starts to unfold. And uh, as soon as the plane lands um, from Portland in, in Seattle – they bring the money to to the uh, to the hijacker, and uh, all the passengers get off except for uh, a man later who's going to be, become known as D.B. Cooper. He actually, when he bought the ticket, he gave the name Dan Cooper. D.B. Cooper was actually a media screw-up because they were immediately looking for uh, someone with a last name Cooper, and someone uh, said there's a D.B. Cooper here that lives in you know the area, so that's just that someone overheard that, so that name became Legend. But he always went under the name Dan Cooper when he bought the ticket. So, DB was just really a media screw-up that stuck. Uh, So, anyway, all the passengers get off. He's still on the plane. They bring on the cash. It was uh, in $20 bills, as he had requested. They brought him two front parachutes and two back parachutes. Well, obviously, the plane is to jump out of the plane with the money, and and, uh, they've all figured this out by then. So, um, the the plane takes off, and DB Cooper... uh, you know they they have some negotiations. Well, you know first before the the, the plane took off, this is very important from uh, from Portland. Gb Cooper demanded that they left down the the rear aft stair, and this was a, a, a Boeing seven twenty seven jet, and it was one of the only ones that had what they call a rear aft stair, where the staircase would come down in the middle, and you could either board the plane or exit the plane by that by that staircase. It wasn't used that often. What was special though was DB Cooper knew that that jet could take off with that stair in the d- staircase in the down position. The pilots didn't even know this, but DB Cooper did. And there was some uh, arguing back and forth with Cooper and the pilots. Uh, you know, he was demanding that the plane take off with that stair down, and they said, "No, we're not going to do it. Not negotiable." So we finally gave in, and they raised the staircase, and the plane took off from from Portland uh you know soon after the plane was in flight there were some more negotiations about how far they could get he originally said he wanted to go to Mexico they informed him that we don't have enough fuel to make it to to Mexico so they settled on Reno Nevada and um not too long after the plane took off from Portland uh he sent the stewardess back up to the cabin there was no one else but the two pilots and and the and the flight crew left and they were you know all up in the front of the plane uh D.B. Cooper starts to put on uh, one of the parachutes he was given. They did bring his money up, but they didn't bring it in the, the the type of bag that he requested. So he immediately took out a pocket knife, started cutting the shroud lines to one of the parachutes he wasn't going to use. And he uh, began to, to uh, uh, tie it around his body in the uh, duffel bag that they brought it in. So is uh, a, a way to secure it to his body. It was probably about 40 pounds worth of $20 bills, which is extremely difficult to skydive with that kind of weight on you if you're not experienced at doing that. So uh, everybody goes up front. Now, at some point, uh, Tina Mucklow, who spent the most time with Cooper, she was uh, the stewardess there, one of the one of the three, uh, walked back and but walked back to the back of the cabin and saw DB Cooper putting on one of the parachutes. And um, he, he sent her back up front. And uh, not too far, long later, there was what they called a pressure bump, and they thought that was Cooper getting the the aft stair down. Actually, Tina Mucklow helped him to lower those aft stairs. Before he actually jumps, so she goes back up front. He's got the parachute on now, and at some point, they believe over Washington, uh, over the town named Ariel, they think he jumped out of the plane with all the money strapped to to his body. He was never seen again. Uh, didn't leave the briefcase on the plane. The only thing he left was uh, some Raleigh filter tip cigarette butts, uh, the drink cup he was using. And a and a black tie, a thin black JC Penny tie. Um, none of the, nothing that he jumped out of the plane was ever found again, uh with the exception of fifty-eight hundred dollars in twenty-dollar bills that was found in nineteen eighty on the shore of a place called the Tina Bar outside of Vancouver, Washington. Uh, a nine-year-old boy named Brian Ingram found fifty-eight hundred dollars of D.B. Cooper's cash and it was later verified to be uh, part of D.B. Cooper's ransom money Nothing else was ever found Other than that $5,800 Not the parachutes And most of all They never found D.B. Cooper So it's, right. it remains a mystery to this day
0: And it was <clears throat> $200,000 at that time Was a substantial amount of money I think it's like about $1.2 today So it was definitely a significant uh, heist But that the money was found Across from Portland, right? So Vancouver, Washington Is right across uh, The Columbia the River Right. Over, over, right, so um, and I mean, so somebody disappeared in into the mist, never to be really be act never be to be caught by the police for sure, but what led you to this care of Ted B. Braden?
1: Well, uh, you know, I kind of got had a resurgence getting back into to, to the d b cooper case listening to Coast to Coast AM. There was a guy that, that Coast to Coast would have on at least once a year for a while, and around the time of the anniversary of the Cooper Jump. And he was an attorney named Galen Cook. And uh, he would come on Coast to Coast and talk about his suspect, a guy that was named William Gossett. He later uh, added uh, changed his first name to Wolfgang. And uh, he was a really interesting suspect to me. And everything that, that Galen Cook said, he was a real articulate guy. And Talking about this this Gossett guy and how he had uh, survival training and all this stuff, and I just got, kind of became interested in and in Gossett as a suspect, and just started looking into him a little bit more. And I was looking at some of the DB Cooper chat rooms where you know the real hardcore Cooperites, as they call them, get on there and talk and talk shop about who do they think DB Cooper is, who's a good suspect, who's a bad suspect, you know, people arguing over whose suspect is better, that kind of stuff. And I would never join these groups; so I would just kind of be a voyeur in reading the things they said. And uh, one day I was reading one, and there was a guy named Bruce Smith who who was uh, the Grand Poobah of the D.B. Cooper case. Uh, He was on the HBO special recently, and uh, he wrote a book called D.B. Cooper and the FBI. And uh, and it was Bruce Smith talking to another uh, guy on the Cooper message board that went by the moniker Snowman. And they were talking about this other suspect named Ted Braden. And uh, immediately when I saw the name and what they were saying about this guy, just immediately fascinated me. They were saying this was the pick of uh, U.S. Special Forces in Vietnam to be DB Cooper, and I thought, man, it's fascinating. This guy needs a a closer look. And uh, and, you know, these these, so uh, I didn't find him. They did. I don't know where they found him. I guess because they would you know go around and and if they ever encountered someone that was in Special Forces in Vietnam the name Ted Braden would come up. They would say, who do you think was D.B. Cooper since, you know, it looks like it could have been a special forces type operation. And obviously the Vietnam war was still going on in 1971. And the answer they would always get back was Ted B. Braden. So I was hooked at that point and I made a mission to, to find out everything I could about this guy. And not only just as a D.B. Cooper suspect, but about B- Braden's life, because it was fascinating. This guy was a true super soldier. He was uh, Rambo before we ever heard the name Rambo, uh, you know, not this big bulky guy. I mean, he was this, uh, you know, he's about five, eight, almost five, nine, but he was really lean. You know, he was, uh, he was in his 40s already when he was in Vietnam. So he, uh, he was already, you know, kind of an older guy, but he was tougher than anybody. And uh, the more I dug into his background, the more I became fascinated with him. And well, he was oh, he
0: was what's interesting about him is he lied to get into World War Two when he was 14. So he was a, by 1971. He was a very, very experienced uh, adventure slash military guy. Right.
1: Heavily, heavily. He was actually I think he just turned 16 when he joined to fight in World War Two. And uh, he was born in 1928, by the way. And he is deceased, as far as we know. It's a, That's a little shrouded in mystery, but he was born in 1928. Uh, so he made probably mid-90s or so now. But uh, from what we know, he, he passed away in 2007, and he was cremated. And the details are pretty sketchy there. He's not like, you know, he's not buried anywhere that shows or uh, even some of his family members that I found uh, don't even know that, what really happened. I mean, I think his... Uh, um, his third wife probably knew, but she had Alzheimer's and things like that, so that was a little shrouded in mystery. But no, he did. He did lie about his age and, and joined up to fight in World War II. And it's because he kind of had a bad home life uh, with his stepfather. He had a pretty pretty rough relationship with. So I think he really just wanted to get out of the house and started with his life. So uh, he catches the tail end of World War II and winds up uh, fighting in the Battle of the Bulge, and some of the you know the harder battles as a paratrooper, a member of the 101st Airborne. And, uh, you know, he he really uh, saw some combat it Is a really young man over there. So, yeah, like you said, he was already a hardened combat veteran before he was 18 and right. uh, had an on and off uh, getting in and out of the military, you know, for most of his career. He was a career military for the most part uh, until he left Vietnam.
0: Can you talk about how he got into Vietnam and what his experiences in Vietnam were?
1: Sure. Uh, he went over to Vietnam at the beginning of 1965, so it was still pretty early. And Braden wound up wound up joining uh, a special forces group called uh, the Materials Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. And that was just called SOG for short. And that's a really uh, benign sounding lame name for the black ops units in Vietnam. I mean, Mac V. SOG was the elite of special forces in Vietnam These guys were the ones that went into Laos and they would do their primary thing was to do wiretaps, the, you know, uh, wiretap the North Vietnamese transmission lines and and gather data. They had a a machine they could hook up when they would make that wiretap and it would would, uh, they would be able to record uh, messages that were obviously in North Vietnamese. They would have translated and they would know where certain generals would be really uh, highly valuable intel, but of course they were going into to Laos where we weren't supposed to be due to the Geneva convention. So, uh, if they got caught in Laos, you were basically the, the, American government would deny you were ever there. So you didn't have that added protection. Uh, so you had to be, you know, the toughest of the tough to want to do that assignment. They had a hundred percent casualty rate in, in the SOG unit, uh, for just either you would at minimum be wounded if not killed when you joined up for that unit and also when you joined they would tell you you couldn't t- talk to anyone about uh, your activities or that you were even in that unit for 30 years or or it'd be really serious stuff against you you'd be court-martialed uh probably put 11 worth of you and told your wife or your girlfriend what you were doing in this unit that's how uh covert it was in, in vietnam and it was you know not declassified till many years later that we even knew what this group was or what they were doing in Vietnam. And uh, Braden was part of a team that was called team Arizona. They were all made up of small teams that were like eight to 10 members total. You would have three Americans and then you would have uh, sometimes up to five or six, what they would call mountain yards or yards for short, which was the uh, mountain people, the indigenous fighters over there in Vietnam. And uh, you would go in, you know, get uh, what they called over the fence and uh, you would do all these operations like wiretaps. Uh, you would try to snatch prisoners. You would do, uh, I mean, all kinds of dirty stuff over there. You would try to find their weapons caches and sabotage their weapons. Really hardcore stuff. And it was actually, Braden was a, uh, what they called the 1-0. That means you were a team leader of your unit in SOG. And he was part of uh, the first team that was, did the first successful wiretap in, in Laos his team carried out. So, uh, really hardcore guy, hardcore stuff over there. He always got his team members out alive, although he was very unconventional. I mean, he took a lot of chances, uh, his, uh, his assistant team lead, a guy named Jim Hetrick. I got to know very well and got the interview for the book, told me so many interesting stories about Ted Braden while he was in Vietnam. He actually killed a guy, uh, you know, a friendly force, a part of the, uh, the, uh, you know, the South Vietnamese army, which Braden just didn't like, didn't like those guys for whatever reason, even though you were fighting basically for the same team, Ted Braden just didn't like those guys for, for, I don't know why, but they just said he didn't and he wound up killing one of them. And uh, they tried to draw him up, you know, on charges for that. And it went nowhere. I mean, quickly, they just basically uh, uh, brushed it under the rug and acted like it never happened. So even in Vietnam, Ted Braden was being protected by a, a higher force, uh, someone higher much higher up than him uh, apparently liked him and then they would you know cover up any any of any of his bad doings would get covered up really quickly. And uh, right. you know, didn't they have
0: didn't they have like un um, I think you wrote in there like they just were kind of free for all free for all.
1: As they said, there was no limitations on rules of engagement. And another way to put that was uh, there is there were no rules of engagement for the, for this type of unit, you know, in Mac V. Sog, you didn't really have a, you know, you would have to somewhat take orders from a higher up a Colonel or a general, but very rarely, you know, these guys kind of did their own thing because it was so elite and uh, you know, they were just trusted to do what they did and you were definitely not supposed to talk about it, but yeah, there were no rules for, of engagement. Uh, Braden liked it because he was a daredevil skydiver, probably the best skydiver that ever lived. And uh, he loved going over there when he got to Vietnam because he could uh, pull his ripcord under a thousand feet, which was suicide for most people. But he was such an accomplished skydiver and he could live on the edge. Uh, he would always get away with it. As a guy named Donald Duncan, Duncan said, who was a uh, special forces Vietnam, later became a real big uh, anti-war guy when he got back to the States, said that uh, Ted Brayden had a secret death wish. But it, but it was coupled with the amazing instincts of survival. And it's like something he'd never seen. It was just this guy could just do such daring things and always wind up living. And he was a And didn't you guy. say
0: that he ranked high on some kind of like cognitive tests too, right? So he kind of had a – he was also daring but also had relatively high intelligence, right?
1: He had very high intelligence. It's what's called a GT score. And I've heard that called the general technical score. In the Army, and it's also called, I've also heard it called general trainability, but anyway, his score was 150, and that's like at the highest range that you can get, and you can kind of extrapolate IQ from that, which would have meant, I don't know how it would be in a number of IQ, but it would mean you were on the very high end of IQ to score at 150 on a GT test, is what I was told. And uh, Braden certainly had that high level of intelligence combined with all these abilities to be able to... Uh, skydive, and then, you know, just, just covert warfare. He had it all. Right.
0: And so he was in non, but then he decided he wanted to, or supposedly, go to the Congo,
1: right? Right. He decided he wanted to become a mercenary. Because for Ted Braden, it was all about money. He'd never joined the military, even when he went to fight in World War II. It was never about patriotism or anything else. It was just, a way, it, in the beginning, just a way to get out of, you know, get out of his, you know, a bad home life. And what he discovered in the military was that he was a true super soldier. He had the ability to be a true super soldier. He just had that kind of genetic makeup to be a super soldier. And uh, he found what he was good at, which was number one, was jumping out of an airplane under any kind of circumstances. Uh, He was just the best at it. He was in a, a, a military jumping team called the Golden Arrows, where they would compete all around Europe. And, uh, he would often win most of those competitions. He was just that good at jumping out of a plane. He won multiple competitions doing that. So, um, you know, going back to Vietnam, he was in a bar in Saigon where he would hang out a lot and there was all kind of FBI types and CIA, mainly CIA types that would hang out there. And he was probably doing missions for them in Vietnam, uh, that a lot of people didn't know about. And, uh, you know, people, he would tell the other guys in his unit, if you ever see me in, in saigon or around you don't know me because he was always running the black market and things like that so uh he's sitting in a bar and uh it's called the carville bar in saigon in late 1966 I and mean, it was december and he heard about uh, mercenaries fighting in the congo and they were making a lot of money to do it and he was a, a sergeant first class at, at that and making decent pay but not enough for him because he was so good at what he did he wanted to go make more money being a soldier so not having any real patriotic ties, he just decided to leave Vietnam on his own. He basically went AWOL, uh, deserted Vietnam, goes, finds his way back to the United States, uh, stays over the Christmas holiday and in, in January, and he makes his way over to England. And he's making, and he finally finds himself over in, uh, in Belgium. And he goes to a hotel where he's uh, going to find this recruiter for, uh, for mercenaries that fight in the Congo. And that's where he was told that they could be at a certain hotel in uh, Belgium. So he finally winds up meeting this guy. He was going to join one group, it turns into another. He finds up joining a group called the Five Commando, which was famous for having a commander named um, Mike Hoare. He was called Mad, Mad Mike Hoare, an Irish guy. But uh, Hoare was already gone uh, at that point. A new guy took over named Ralph Peters. And so Braden makes it to the Congo. He goes through all their tests. He's under an assumed name when he gets there uh, of a Canadian guy that was a special forces in Vietnam that had been killed in a mortar attack, uh, a premature mortar attack that uh, malfunctioned on the guy. So he used his name and his name was Edward uh, Horner. And uh, so he's fighting in the Congo under five commando under the name uh, Edward Horner. So uh, somehow the CIA finds out that Braden is down there, an American. I don't know who turned him in, but one of his own his own people. I think it was Colonel Ralph Peters, he thought, turned him in. So the CIA catches up with Braden at a hotel. Five guys come out of a uh, out of a dark hallway, put put guns to his head and saying, uh, you're coming back with us. You know, we know who you are. And they interrogate him. They take him to a, a hotel room and strip him down to a bed and they interrogate him. You know, what's your name? Uh, what have you done over here? When did you leave Vietnam? All this kind of thing for th- for three days. Well, they finally whisk him into a car, take him to an airport and fly him back to the United States. And he gets back to the United States, and uh, he's now a prisoner at Fort Dix military base in New Jersey. And that's where he runs into a guy named, uh, it was at the time, Captain Hank Birch. And thank God I know Hank Birch, and Hank Birch had his story out there because after he met Ted Braden, he was in charge of Ted Braden while he was in confinement at Fort Dix. And when uh, Hank Birch met him, you know, like watching over him, uh, he became fascinated with him because he immediately saw irregularities involving this guy. He was uh, in his jail cell at Fort Dix and he had a TV in his cell. He said, this is unheard of in a military uh, brig. The guy had a TV. He said he had filtered tip cigars and anything with a filter was strictly forbidden at Fort Dix because uh, prisoners would use the filters to jam up the toilets and just make all kind of trouble. But Braden had TV, like I said, he had filter tip cigars. He uh, had his clothes looked perfect all the time. That's one thing about Ted Braden; he was extremely conscious about how he looked. And I've always been told by people that knew him, if you saw Ted Braden outside of anywhere else, you would assume he was either a college professor or a colonel because he took such care of his physical appearance and his clothes and how he looked. And he spoke really well. He was highly intelligent, and he spoke that way. He was kind of soft spoken. But he always thought about what he was going to say before he said it. So there was always like this pausing when you would ask him a question or he would say something. There was always this pause because he was trying to say the the right things at all times. Very, very measured in his speech. But anyway, um, so he's at Fort Dix. And he's obviously there because he deserted the Vietnam War. This is a pretty serious charge. Um, And that's what he's there for, not for fighting in the Congo, but for the first charge of going AWOL in Vietnam. So it comes the day that they're going to hold a, a court-martial for Braden, And uh, it's, I think, t- two hours before they actually hold the court hearing there at, on base. And before it happens, a phone call comes in from a guy. Uh, his name was um, Harold Johnson, and he was the, the chief of staff of the entire U.S. Army. He was the highest-ranking active member of the U.S. Army. Calls to intervene on Ted Braden's behalf and says, uh, we're not going to be having that court-martial today for Ted Braden. People are like, what? And he goes, what's the reason? And the reason given was there was not enough MPs on base to secure the courtroom. And Hank was there at the time and said, are you kidding me? This is Fort Dix. This place is crawling with MPs. You could look out the window and see 20 of them. This was such a contrived joke. And they couldn't believe this the highest-ranking guy in the Army. Uh, was calling to intervene for this guy. So they wound up not having the court martial and they offer Braden a general discharge. He's wanted for de- desertion. I mean, uh, right. and they give him a general discharge. This is insane. And uh, he also gets in an argument over a special wristwatch. Brayden box it, taking the general discharge and says, I'm not going to take this deal unless you give me my watch back. And I don't know how special this watch was, but he was literally holding out to get a watch back. I don't know if it was sentimental or what it could do, but anyway, he balked. But originally, you know, winds up taking the general and, they, and then he had to promise never to join the U.S. military again. And when they lined up to, to leave, they're basically being released. You would always line up in order of your rank. Like if you were a captain or, or you know, that higher rank and then the privates or, or corporals would be behind you. They lined up braiding ahead of people with far higher ranks when he was released. So he's getting special treatment from somewhere like he did in Vietnam still here at Fort Dix. So he gets basically released, general discharge, don't ever join the Army again. And there goes Braden from, from uh, military confinement.
0: And what year was that? What year did he get let out of the uh, uh, jail, Fort Dix?
1: 19, that was 1967.
0: 67. So then he gets out, and does he do the golden arrows after he gets out of jail? No. Okay,
1: so it's before no. –
0: and then he starts driving a truck, but he also kind of had, he still kind of was engaging in criminality even yes. after getting out of jail, right?
1: Right. So his, his whereabouts, right after he's uh, uh, let out, are, are, are not known. It's almost like they've been scrubbed. I mean, you can't find it. You know, this is a guy that they don't want you to know about. Uh, he winds up in the later part of 1967 in September, uh, a magazine called Ramparts uh, publishes an article about Ted Braden. Very interesting. And he's talking about his time uh, fighting as a mercenary soldier. And I'll read the the first part of this real quick. It says uh, and it it reads like an advertisement. That's why it's so interesting. But it's uh, it had a picture of John Lennon on the cover. But it says it's like a true ad because Brayden's still looking for work. And it Mm -hmm. says mercenary soldier, 14 years military service available for position immediately. Qualifications: 101st Airborne Division, World War II, Master Parachutist, 911 log jumps, including 695 free falls. Ex-Lieutenant, Ex-Sergeant, U.S. Army, operated in four countries in Southeast Asia and two in Africa. Experience in the use of weapons demolition, demolitions, sabotage, infiltration, specialty as training and directing hunter-killer teams. 23 months of jungle experience. And uh, it reads like an ad. That's it was a real ad that was in the San Francisco Chronicle that he's talking about, and uh, the article was written by the military director of ramparts, which was Donald Duncan, an ex special forces soldier who knew Braden from Vietnam, who was now anti-war, covering you know Braden's experience as a mercenary. So fascinating. So nothing's really known from Braden until the early part of the 1970s, where he is a truck driver and he's committing these kind of strange crimes. Uh, as a truck driver, he's leaving his, uh, his truck, uh, to be stolen because there's a bunch of goods in it and he's arranging for this. And then one time he got caught for stealing a bunch of, uh, meat and fish from a warehouse and, uh, he gets pulled over for drunk driving when he's, when he, uh, at one point and he won't give, you won't know, he won't tell the police what his name is. He won't give him his driver's license. He just he won't cooperate at all. So he did have a criminal record for sure. Uh, that was after the Cooper,
0: event right and he had kind of like also a sketchy personal life he was married a couple or three times but the first and second wives didn't know of his earlier uh relationships right right
1: do you
0: remember anything like that yeah but he also um there were after he or who i mean after this whole db cooper event there were like 14 or 15 copycats right or attempted copycats
1: uh, you know, there were some smaller cases of of, of copycats that really didn't go far. Uh, you know, the most notable was a guy named uh, Richard McCoy, who pulled off a similar skyjacking that D.B. Cooper did about five months after the Cooper skyjacking. Uh, he was from Utah. He, you know, real, you know, uh, definitely would have been inspired by Cooper. Some people think that uh, Richard McCoy was D.B. Cooper. I don't personally. Uh, but he did uh, get away with stealing more money. He actually did a $500,000 ransom just about five or so months after Cooper and uh, made it. But he bragged a lot about, you know, he bragged ahead of time that he was going to do it and asking questions. He had a friend that was a, a Utah uh, state trooper that he told about it. And they quickly apprehended him and got almost all the money back, all, all half a million dollars other than like six dollars that he bought a, a meal and a milkshake for. So he quickly got got caught. Uh, but he was the most famous copycat was, uh, Richard Floyd McCoy.
0: And, but there, I mean, there's other investigators and they've kind of gone through some of these copycats or other people who are capable of it. But, uh, do you think that what, I mean, you talked to Braden's stepdaughter and she said that he was, he was Cooper, right?
1: Well, yeah, I did. I, I was really fortunate to get a hold of her and it wasn't easy because I think, uh, you know, they had probably been approached by people in the past. She has uh, three older sisters, which probably would have had even better memories at the time. But I was fortunate to talk to the youngest stepdaughter of Braden's, who was living with him at the time of the Cooper skyjacking. So uh, he was definitely gone from home a lot. So this guy was definitely not home on, for Thanksgiving of 1971. And I said, well, what do you remember about that time mostly? And she said, well, we had a lot of money, and I never understood why, because he was a long-haul truck driver. Uh, he drove a newer model Mercedes Benz, which Dad Braden loved. Mercedes—that's all he would ever drive. He had one when he was in Europe. Um, her mother, who was Braden's third wife, her name was uh, Pauline. She had a newer model Mercedes Benz, and they lived in a penthouse apartment in, in downtown Chicago. And she wondered how they—that—and her mother wasn't working at the time either, so it's not like they even had a double income. And she always wondered how he was able to afford all that. Now it could have been because he was pulling off some heists too with his—with his. With his uh, you know his scams with his trucking thing, but he always did seem to have money, and it and it and it stuck out to her. And actually, her mother, um, she asked her mother point blank one day, "Was Ted D.B. Cooper?" And her mom said, looked at her, and, and very is, seriously she could do, say and say, "Yes, he was." But the caveat to that was she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, uh, unfortunately. And I said, asked the daughter, "Do you do you think she was telling the truth? Or was lucid enough to mean it?" She said, "Yeah, I do." But I have to preface it with she had early stages of Alzheimer's, unfortunately. But she said for many years, the FBI was calling on them.
0: And they they um, he also kind of had distinguishing characteristics of what this woman, Tina Mucklow, saw on the plane. Right. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Tina Mucklow said he was a gentleman, despite the FBI trying to say that he was a bad guy or some of the people like uh, I think it was Ralph Spock, one of the earlier investigators would say, oh, he's just a, he's a thug. He's a bad guy. Uh, Tina Mucklow said he was a perfect gentleman and uh, he didn't cuss. He was always calm uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was just extremely calm though when he was going to jump out of a 727 into bad weather at night. Uh, which tells you this person was extremely trained. But anyway, uh, going back to the politeness, I was told by Al Tire, who was Braden's jumping partner in the Golden Arrows in the early 60s, he said, one thing I would never forget about Ted Braden was how he treated women. He treated women with the utmost respect, other than being on his third wife, of course. But he said, if a woman walked into a room, like at a bar or any type of room, uh, Braden would immediately stand up. And if you didn't stand up too, He would get all over you. And Al said, I remember one time a woman walked into a room, Ted stood up and I didn't. And I'll never hear, you know, I never heard the end of it. He said, You you better never let that happen again, Al, in my presence. When a woman comes into the room, you stand up immediately. It was one of the things you'd never forget about, Ted Braden. And that really fits in with Tina. Um, Also, of course, Tina Mucklow spent the most time with DB Cooper. And when she talked about his accent, she said, He really didn't have a discernible accent, and she thought it was from possibly because he was from the Midwest. Well, Braden was from Ohio. Uh, Can't get any more Midwest than that. So he had so many things going for him, uh, just from what Tina described. um, Just fit right. He had kind
0: of like a neck. I mean, his face does look like it too, like the same kind of drawing. People call it what the Cosby drawing, but he he definitely had certain characteristics
1: of he he definitely did. He did, for for the, all the people that saw D.B. Cooper that were on that flight, that were interviewed with the FBI after the skyjacking took place, because remember, none of the passengers knew it was going on. They were already off the plane and in, in, into the airport when the uh, FBI intercepted them and said, uh, your plane was was being is, was being hijacked or it's being hijacked now, the one you just got off of. Not one passenger had a clue that it was being hijacked. Uh, but for any passenger that says, could you remember the guy in the back or whatever... For everyone that said they could remember him, they all had one distinguishing feature that, 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 that was the most prevailing of all those people, and it was that he was swarthy or was dark-complected. They said he was a white male, but he had dark skin. So when I uncovered a picture of Braid from 1975 sitting next to his mother, I almost jumped out of my seat. I was like, man, he's got that really dark skin, uh, and especially you can tell because he's next to his mother, who's you know very pale. So uh, he definitely had that feature going for him. He also had what's known as a turkey neck, and that's important because uh, a college student that was on the flight named Bill Mitchell was taking the most critical look at T.B. Cooper because he was jealous of him. Uh, Bill Mitchell was uh, a 20-year-old college student on that flight, and he was sitting just adjacent from D.B. Cooper. And he remembers looking at D.B. Cooper thinking, why are these stewardesses making a fuss over this older guy? Remember, all the, all, most of the eyewitnesses put D.B. Cooper as middle age. Ted Braden was 44 years old at the time of the skyjacking. But Bill Mitchell's looking at him like, why are these, you know, I'm a, I'm a just handsome, tall uh, college student, and these are young, you know, early 20s uh, flight attendants, and, and they're attractive. Why are they fawning over this old guy and not even paying me attention? So he was jealous. And he remembered that D.B. Cooper had this sagging chin. And he told the FBI that as soon as he was interviewed, and the FBI wrote it down. They put sagging chin and spilled drink. Bill Mitchell remembered that. And uh, that's a critical thing to have. I mean, uh, because it's a genuine description from a guy that didn't forget because he was jealous. So that always stood out to me.
0: And also, like, the conduct of the caper itself never had any vi- physical violence. So it's not like somebody panicked and had to punch somebody or engage. And it was such a controlled thing. You would have to think this person first timer, because when you compare him to other possible suspects who are much younger or first time criminals, they just act in a, in a panicky way. Right. Uh, when you compare it. So it's like this guy either is involved in other criminal or, you know, this kind of Rambo special ops thing where everything's right. placed out in time, which you had to do to have to pull it off successfully. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. Uh You know, another going back to Richard Floyd McCoy, who did pull off a similar skyjacking. Uh, that's why if anyone ever thinks that he makes a good TV Cooper suspect, he really doesn't. Not just because he looks absolutely nothing like any of the sketches, but his skyjacking and there's there's really there's a great detailed article about what happened to him he left his notes his his, his uh, hijack instructions in the waiting room at the airport one of the uh, people working for the airport had to go onto the plane and say hey did anybody leave this and McCoy got out of the bathroom and saw the guy waving it and he said that's mine he had to quickly claim it because if they had opened the envelope uh, it, it was over you know what a huge mistake D.B. Cooper would have never made that mistake he asked for the written notes back he did everything by the book never panicked he was totally calm and going back to Richard McCoy he was he was putting on makeup in the bathroom of his skyjacking and he immediately called attention to himself uh, when he sat back down in his chair so he had to wind up doing his thing almost immediately because he was he was so nervous and Richard Floyd McCoy was he was briefly a Green Beret in Vietnam but he was more of an accomplished uh, helicopter pilot in Vietnam and uh, he won a Silver Star. I mean, just short, just short of a Medal of Honor for one action that McCoy took over there. So here's a guy that's pretty well-trained, too. Um, Green Beret, Vietnam. Uh, really high intense stress as a high a helicopter pilot. And he's nervous during his skyjacking. It just shows you that Braden is in another class. Even for Special Forces, he's in another class. That's why the, the, the legends of Special Forces in Vietnam have always pointed to Ted Braden and Stevie Cooper. Because... They didn't say they would act like we don't have any special knowledge, but of any of our into our ranks that would have done this, that would have been smart enough to do it and had the skills to do it. It was Ted B. Braden. They never give you a number two choice. They never say it could have been Ted Braden and uh, Bill, Bill Smith or they never give you another name. It's always right. Braden because he, he was in another league.
0: Right. I mean, it probably killed, would you say, the average SOG person killed an average of 158 people or something? So oh, yes. he probably didn't have to Absolutely. do it. Absolutely, Just didn't feel like he had to engage in physical violence. He just went through. No. It seems no. like he's a good fit.
1: Oh, he's um, perfect.
0: Yeah. So, Drew, is there anything I missed, anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up? Can you tell people about your social media, or where they can find the book?
1: Sure. Uh, all The book's on Amazon.com. And uh, on Instagram, it's Drew Hurst Beeson. And then the YouTube channel, a lot of the stuff's on YouTube. So uh, if you look for the DB Cooper stuff, uh, it's all on my YouTube channel. A lot of what's in the book is on, on there for free. If you don't like books, I know a lot of people don't. So a lot of it are in the videos. You can definitely check it out there.
0: And it's your YouTube channel again is Drew Beeson, B E E S O N, correct? Correct. And then it's also on YouTube. Again, the title of the book is Paratrooper of Fortune, the story of Ted B. Braden. Vietnam Commando, CIA Operative, Congo Mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper by Drew Beeson. Drew, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it, William.
0: All right. Take care. Have a great weekend.
1: You too. All right. Bye-bye.